what we are as people in our psyche, in our gut, in our hands, in our hearts, we haven't designed a world where we can actually fit in well. And we sort of refuse to make any changes. So my mission has been as a salesman for sustainability, how can I convince you that if we slow down a little bit, if we begin to look at what it is we're dismantling, we'll begin to see that if we keep from dismantling it, that's all we really need. All we really need to be happy in this world is a strong culture where people work together and nature that is on the rebound. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi an activist who's passionate about building a better, more sustainable, and truly regenerative future. Every week, I invite you to care a little bit more so that together we can all be a little better. Building a community of do-gooders is a big part of our aim here, and I've already had the pleasure of connecting with people all over the globe. If you want to learn more about what you can do to get involved and be a part of the change that you hope to see in the world, I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a five-step guide to help unleash your inner activist as your welcome gift. If you have thoughts you'd like to share, I encourage you to reach out. Send me a note through the website, or you can even click the microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner and leave me a voicemail. Ask any question, suggest a topic, or introduce me to someone that you think we should see featured on this show. Because without community suggestions, several of the guests that we've featured you would never have heard from. This will be the second episode that explores the power of fiction to move for positive change as we connect with the environmentalist, filmmaker, and author, Dave Wan. Dave has written 10 books and produced five TV documentaries about sustainable lifestyles and design. He's a proud dad and husband, an amateur musician, and provides organic vegetables for neighbors in the co-housing neighborhood he's lived in for 25 years. His most recent work, Tickling the Bear, How to Stay Safe in the Universe, aims to push for change with the power of story and fiction. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really uh, glad to be here. I really admire your approach, which is similar to mine, that really it's about people making positive changes that really, if we can convince them, it's going to be much more pleasant to to create a different world. I really think it's going to be easier for us to adopt a new way of living uh, than it is to prop up a broken way of living. So we can do better. We can change things over the course of humanity's history, and we're going to change it again. That's right. Before we discuss your new work with Tickling the Bear, I have a few questions for you that relate to your present state and history. I understand we are in the middle of harvest season for you in the mountains of Colorado, or perhaps planting season. So let's start with a snapshot of the co-housing community that you live in. How did it come to be, and what is it like to live there today? It is an effort that is probably the biggest adventure of my life. About 26 years ago, I was experiencing a breakup, and I began to look around and, and see if where am I going to live next? And if I 
could choose a place, this co-housing idea seems very interesting. And co-housing is an idea that was pioneered in Denmark, and they call it living communities there. I was very much interested in the idea that I could be a sustainable model community. And I, so I joined a small group of five or six people who were going to create the whole neighborhood. And that involves buying the land, getting a developer, building our own neighborhood under the ethic that we wanted to live in. So it's been very exciting. And 26 years later, we're still uh, figuring out a way to get along. You know, it's not a perfect, we call it Harmony Village, but you know what? It's not perfectly harmonious. It's just that it has the intent to be as good as it can be. So I, I'm very much tuned into the idea. I'm very much a person who wants to be looking at satisfying needs rather than reaching for unattainable wants. And I think that the neighborhood that I'm in and the garden that I, I work along with other neighbors are a bullseye. They are a jackpot in terms of meeting needs. So, I mean, they're like mother's milk. You know, they provide everything that humans need from communication to leisure, to expressivity, to creativity, to security. So I'm really becoming, that's a new part of what I'm now becoming re-involved in is let's talk about neighborhoods. Let's talk about building all neighborhoods better. And that involves the people who are going to live in that neighborhood or do live in that neighborhood. I actually wrote a book called Superbia long ago, and um, I'm trying to build to bring back many of those ideas that any neighborhood anywhere could actually adopt some of the same principles that we use here. You could provide a list of who lives in the neighborhood and you could begin to say, now I have this skill, I can share this skill. And you can begin to have your potluck dinners and this kind of thing. And eventually you can begin to buy a house in the neighborhood. You know, why not? And use it as a community building. Right. Well, it's interesting because I interviewed recently Ethan Welty, who is a co-founder of Falling Fruit an organization that logs where fruit trees are all over the world and enables people to then go harvest them when they're in fruit, right? So that Perfect. falling fruit doesn't just go to waste, which mm -hmm. is, I think, an admirable approach. He also lives in a similar community in Sweden, where it's much more likely to run into these sorts of communities that Absolutely. you're speaking of today. So that's really incredible. And I would like to see more of them. I am noticing, especially in city centers where it's very expensive, like New York or San Francisco, that some co-housing units where there is more of a community basis around them are cropping up. But a large part of that is because of affordability and because often they're occupied by single people instead of families. And so it's a little bit more, I think, amenable to that. I wonder what your thoughts are about where we are presently and if you're aware of any projects that are presently underway that incorporate a lot of the basic framework for what you have there in Colorado. Yeah, well, I think I'm still plugged into the people who brought the idea back from Denmark. Two people who were architectural students in Denmark, they were going to have a child and they decided, what's the best way as architects, what can we build that would really provide a good upbringing for a child. And it, you know, it's a village, let's face it. It's the kind of thing where people can live the way we've lived for 95, 99% of our time as humans in small clans of up to 25, 30 people. It's a family. And so I'm still plugged into the co-housing end of things. And I am very 
much involved in the new urbanist movement, for example, that talks about when you build a neighborhood, let's build it with the front porches, let's build it with, you know, with the good efficient windows, let's build our houses just right. But I am fascinated by this idea of existing neighborhoods that we already have built the stock. We have this, frankly, some of it's rather shoddy, but still we're stuck with 100,000 homes that are already built. And so I'm very, very interested in seeing if I can start the spark to say, hey, you know, I have this book called Superbia and I also have material online now that says there's about 31 easy and, and slightly harder things to do that could make your neighborhood safer, more satisfying, and really add dimension and satisfaction to your life. Well, I think that's beautiful. I plan to read that book. I haven't dove into it quite as much as some of your other work at this point. Now, you co-authored a book called Affluence, How Overconsumption is Killing Us and How to Fight Back. It became a bestseller and was also an acclaimed PBS series watched by more than 10 million viewers. So what didn't we learn through this work and how can we finally learn it? I know that's a big question, but it's just a thing that I have been left thinking about. Well, something that I wanted to introduce, and I may as well introduce it right now, that we are, as we discovered in affluenza, we, we discovered, we, we pretty much presented what we all know instinctively, that we're way over the edge of sanity, really. Eric Fromm, one of the most influential psychologists of our time, said that one million people believe in a pathological way of living does not make it sane, let's face it. And so America has gotten swept away by a certain formula, and that is heavily reliant on consumption. And I really do think that there are dominant institutions, the economy, and this whole uh, sort of script that we've been given, and yet it's sort of backwards. It's not really... um, providing what we are as people in our psyche, in our gut, in our hands, in our hearts. We haven't designed a world where we can actually fit in well, and we sort of refuse to make any changes. So my mission has been as a salesman for sustainability. How can I convince you that if we slow down a little bit, if we begin to look at what it is we're dismantling, we'll begin to see that if we keep from dismantling it, that's all we really need. All we really need to be happy in this world is a strong culture where people work together and nature that is on the rebound. As you've interviewed Paul Hawken, and he's very strong on the idea that we can actually restore and regenerate the world that we've just about destroyed. So that's a strong piece of message that we carried away from affluenza that it it needs to change And that change doesn't have to be scary. We can do it if we work together. What I was talking about with the three-step program, which is a boiled down 12-step program, is first acknowledge that we have a problem. That's what they do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a problem. Okay, second is to say, how do I solve this problem? I'm here working together with these other people, providing support to them and, and receiving support from them. And so as a cooperating species, as a communicating species, let's work together. So step one, acknowledge that we have a problem. Step two, seek support and begin to work as a team globally. And step three is change our identity. 
That's what a person who's experienced alcoholism finally does. They say, well, that's what I used to do. I'm not doing that anymore. I have a new identity now. I've been clean for 12 years, you know. So I think we have to begin to put the pieces together, showing that there are very successful ways to acknowledge that we have a problem and begin step by step to create something better. Well, I think one of the core elements that we discussed with when I interviewed Paul Hawken was the reality that without hope, people don't act. Right. And that it's very easy in this particular era to get dissuaded from hope and to feel like there's not very much you can do because the fact of your individual actions are that they will have an impact of 0.000000003% if you were to live basically in a treehouse. Comparing that against what happens from this industrial world where we're creating a lot more carbon than we're ever drawing down and we're creating a lot more other greenhouse gases that we won't even be able to draw down. So people get into this moment where they feel trapped, unable to make change, like it's just too much effort and they can throw up their hands and just give up. So what would you say to that person that might be a little bit overwhelmed by the enormity of the climate crisis or the climate challenge that we're all facing today so that they can re-engage and start to feel like they too can make a difference? Okay, that's a good question. And it really does get right to the heart of it. And the heart of it, I think, is identity, personal identity, which is bruised right now on a global scale. And if we begin to say, I, you know, I've made promises to myself over the course of my lifetime, and I'm going to see if I can stay on track with what I said I was going to do, which in many cases, most people really want to help if they can. Okay, so find your niche and do the best you can at that and spread the word that I have an idea. Really, it's like a global suggestion box right now. When you're changing a whole civilization, you're really wanting to move. And I have two slogans I want to. One is a, a quote from Gandhi. Speed is irrelevant if you're traveling in the wrong direction. And I think that's part of the acknowledging piece. But then the idea is, what do we want? We want to meet our needs. We've been thinking that we've already, we already got needs met. So let's move along to these wants. And we haven't got the needs met. So we need to, uh, I guess, self-aware to the extent that we can say, well, I do acknowledge that we, we need to do some work here. And I'm going to change my personal identity such that maybe that big car really is not what I want to have as my symbol of status. This is anthropologically true. Humans need a sense of status. They need a sense of belonging in the group. And maybe they can get that status by being a very kind, generous person. And yeah, I'm, I'm driving a beat up car, but that's not really what I want you to be judging me by or giving me respect by. I want you to give me respect because I care about you. And that's why your podcast is right on in terms of what I'm, the way I'm thinking, that if we can begin to change our personal identity or at least regroup in the way we think of ourselves, then we realize, then you make up the decision that you're going to change. And you're going to seek out these people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, who are like-minded. Because now the conversation is, guess what? We're changing now. And not you. I, I've known from 30 years of writing sustainable books and so forth, you really can't preach at people, but you can say, here's what I'm learning. 
and you find other people who are thinking the similar things, you're not just an individual anymore. So now you're beginning to get a, a critical mass of people. It's been called the creative, what do they call it? The people who are creatively building a new world. And you begin to link up with them and you begin to give them a sense of power, personal power. And that's happening. I'm not going to, um, you know, call down the whole ability of us to make change because we can't. But when we're changing our personal identity and we're empowering ourselves, let's make it clear that we're go also going to do what we've always done as humans, which is get with the tribe. And um, I'm seeing this happen in various parts of our political structure, which is badly bruised. But I see people who are saying, we're moveon.org, etc. We're going to work together to create, to go for this one goal that we're really working towards. And I agree with you that climate change is it right now. We need to be asking the question for just about everything we do, how is this going to have an effect on climate change? So to go back to what I was just saying in terms of respect and status, if we change the symbols of our civilization, that changes the whole paradigm. Then we start to build things in a different way. We start to build good communities. We start to manufacture cement and steel and all these other energy intensive things in a way that actually meets that climate change need that we have. And we need to be having political people step forward. And that involves that individual who has this new identity. All of a sudden, you're going to the political caucuses. All of a sudden, you're going to say, what do you think about climate change? Because that's up at the top of my list here. And I, can't, I won't elect you unless you have a, an honest and helpful answer on that. We need politicians to be part of this whole huge change. As a matter of fact, as you know, it's very necessary that we elect leaders who can understand what the problem is. So, you know, as individuals, we group together, we begin to get like-mindedness, we begin to be better informed, you know, media like your, your own here, and we empower ourselves, or if we don't quite reach that level and we still don't feel like we're hopeful, well, then you work on willpower. Then you say, well, okay, so I, I'm not sure if it's all going to work out. But, you know, it's it's not going to be very satisfying if you just you're moping around and saying, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to last it out here. And you're going to feel much better if you have a sense of pride rather than shame. And that's one reason why I began to look at the idea of not just providing facts in my writing, but also providing role models and providing people who get it. And they're gradually moving forward with a lifestyle that can maybe intrigue other people too. Well, that's perfect. So let's use this as a segue. Let's talk about tickling the bear. Could you share a brief synopsis of the story and a little bit more about why you chose to write this as a work of fiction as opposed to yet another nonfiction piece of work? Right. Well, as I alluded to, the writing of nonfiction work, that it has to be sort of, you know, you're telling a lot of the bad news. And I worked at EPA for a long time and 10 years. And I was the person who was having to write the articles about, oh, my God, the, you know, the Superfund site, etc. You know, but really, it gets to be a lot of research. And it gets to be a lot of work to be coming up with this and then even defending yourself. I, when I came up with one article for the Rocky Mountain News, the editor changed the title to Chicken Little Says Sky is Falling. And, you know, you get worn down by that. And I also had a guy from Denver Business Journal who said that I was a threat to the world as we know it, because I was a 
columnist at the Denver Post for a while. I agreed with him. Yeah, I am. I do want to change the world as we know it. But to make my point, I wanted to do some writing that was in my in my advancing age. I wanted to have a bit more fun, at least you know, for a while, more smiles per hour. And so I, I began writing a novel about eight years ago now. And it took me five years to write because I'm a great procrastinator when I'm given the opportunity. So I noticed that five men in my neighborhood passed on. Some were old, some were, had disease and so forth. And I began to think, so what would it be like if you knew that you, were, that you could be dying? And we all need to be thinking that, by the way. We all need to be not evading our mortality. We need to be you know, celebrating our life all the way to the end. But so I thought, I'm going to write a book about a guy who has, who's been diagnosed as having a potentially fatal disease. And I'm going to build a world of people around him that, you know, say, well, you know, I don't think so. His daughter tells him, you know, you're a healthy person. You're probably on the list of, if you have a 5% chance of survival by, you know, by this diagnosis, you're in the 5% who are going to make it because you've always exercised, always eaten well, etc. So it's the protagonist is a guy whose life is threatened by a, a virus. And I came up with a, <laughs> with a virus idea before COVID. So I call it BC, before COVID. And I wanted to build role models around him. One guy is a dropout from Wall Street. Another guy is a dropout from uh, Silicon Valley. They would rather live their lives than try to amass money and in some cases without money without ethics kind of thing. And they create their own jobs. They create their own lives. And that's, a key, that's probably the key point in this book. These are people who are creating their lives rather than let their lives be created. Right. Well, you're talking specifically to my heart here. I'm in Silicon Valley or close enough to it to call myself yeah. in Silicon Valley. This is where I spent my teen years. I'm in yeah. Santa Cruz County and I went to college here and I'm not leaving anytime soon. I live here. I have a home here. My husband works in high tech. I went to Santa Clara University for my MBA. Mm -hmm. I was like one of two lone people who wasn't hoping to work or continue working in tech in some capacity. I thought perhaps in going through my MBA that I might one day pivot to working in that industry. And through the entire course study, only felt like I was doubling down on wanting to do something more in natural products, feeding people, giving them the right sustenance affordably, things along those lines, because I've spent a lifetime in this career path. And I also think that there's value in that for humanity. Now, you know, you're working specifically to feed people in your community with the forests that you're building by even just planting fruit trees, right? Like even if they are orchards, so to speak, right? Uh -huh. But you're working to feed people within your community with this kind of forest farm perspective that's more regenerative, that sequesters carbon instead of just doing a bunch of tilling, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious for you to talk a little bit more about how your book might integrate some of these ideas and get people thinking about them a little bit differently so that it's not just, oh, it's some hippie commune off in the Colorado mountains or some community off in Sweden or Denmark. That's not what we do here in America. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. And let me, let me continue a little bit on the idea of who my characters are. I wanted them to portray people who can trust each other people who are modestly self-assured kind of thing. And by the way, my sister lives in Palo Alto, and I'm not calling down Silicon Valley, but I'm just saying that it is a certain lifestyle that is beyond the, the means of many people. 
So I wanted to create people who had built their own lives. One guy is a Japanese herbalist, and his, he wants his son to join the business. His son is the one that dropped out of Wall Street. And another one, another person, the protagonist, who's ill, is a professor of future studies. And he actually is working on a project where they're coming up with a, uh, what do they call it, a time capsule to be delivered in 200 years. Another person is an activist and is going to run for state senator. Another person is something like yourself, dealing with art of cultural artifacts and bringing them into the world for their sense of meaning. The fourth person, the protagonist's brother, is a woodworker, as well as he, they do have you know, a farm in Northern California. And he is working on a, a huge totem pole that celebrates the culture of Northern California, going back 10,000 years, the biological aspect of where they live. So these are people, you know, in a nutshell, who care about things. You know, this is in keeping with your title, that we can't get anything done unless we care. And I really, as I wrote the book and I developed these characters, I was thinking, geez, I hope people, you know, can laugh out loud at this, cry on the sly and kind of ponder themselves, themselves silly because I really want this to reach people and to have them think about how they might be similar to these people who are riding their bikes around the city, you know, and having salmon Sundays and, and get togethers where they say, you yeah, know, let's eat a little less meat, you know? And so point is that it's not preaching. If there is any preaching, I'm not doing it anymore. So, but the fact is um, it's just people living their lives. There's just like life, there's some sex in the book. There, you know, it's a novel, and it's sort of portraying uh, the world of people who are independently creative. So, I think this question comes up for every author of fictitious works. But people wonder if the characters happen to be based on people from your life, or perhaps other people that you might admire. Perhaps there's a Paul Hawken in the book. I don't know, but I'm just curious to see how you develop these characters. How much of yourself are you putting into them? And I know, as every author will say, that there's something of myself in all of the characters. But I'm just wondering if there's a particular set or individual even that resonates with you differently than the other characters that feels more like home to you. Yeah, I had another podcaster the other day ask me the question, you know, where are some of these people your friends and are, is, are you in some of this? And absolutely, like you say, um, you're more or less in all of them. I, I told my daughter, now you're not that daughter. But the fact is, you know, you're coming from your place of your lens on the world. But yes, yeah, so the protagonist being a professor was a guy who was my professor when I got my master's degree in environmental science. And he was a rambling guy. He, he took the bus down to the classes. He would, in fact, invite some of the honor students or whatever to his house for a salmon fry or something. He, was very, he would ride his bike uh, around, you know, Boulder. So he is maybe the, you know, a model for the, who the professor is. I'm very much into herbalism as a preventive way of looking at things. So maybe I'm the Japanese herbalist. You know, not that I know that much. But, you know, and then uh, I know people who want to be active politically. So the, uh, the woman from Denmark is uh, the one who I had in mind there. You know, they had people that I know who are politically active. So, yeah, I think it's true that you have to operate in, off of what you know. And I think my greatest pleasure in, in putting together the story was to take the favorite little vignettes from my own life. I admit it. You know, 
some of these romances in the book, for example, are directly <laughs> out of my life. And then some of them are close and, you know, but that goes back to the idea as I close the loop on one romance, you know, it kind of brought tears to my eyes because I was thinking, damn, you know, this is what people can do if they're taking care of each other. Yeah. The guy who is a Wall Street dropout and who's very strongly considering joining his father's herbal business, Kibo, which means uh, hope in Japanese, he does something incredible. He actually travels all the way to Borneo as his friend's health continues to decline to find the indigenous cure, a possible indigenous cure for the virus that Mark has. Hmm. So, I mean, these are people who, in a novel, you, they can do that. They can go all the way around the world and march into the Borneo forest to find the indigenous cure. So I enjoyed being somewhat fantastical as well as retelling the story about my girlfriend from high school and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Well, I wondered in a way if you had been inspired by the medicine hunter, Chris Killam, who I interviewed a few episodes ago. He's someone I've known for 20 years in the Natural Channel and has traveled all over the world to help find medicines of all sorts around the globe. And it was just such an interesting walk through history to learn from his perspective how the world has changed in the last 20 years that he's been out there doing all of this good work and, you know, working to document where our herbs come from and the wage disparity and how it affects people on the ground level in different spots around the globe. So at any rate, I just was curious. I had to ask. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of the herbalism, I didn't have a list of podcasts yet, but I've been very interested in this because it just seems to me such, like such an obvious piece of our daily life that we're drinking the herbal teas, you know, we're willing to go that to that length. We understand that we are what we eat. Well, you know, many of us realize that it's very valuable to be eating natural things. You know, our prescription drugs are actually based largely on natural products. And it just seems like an informed consumer of the right herb at the right time needs to come into the mainstream. And along with the idea that let's get rid of the processed food, as, as you well know. Right. Well, I'm in the way to removing dairy from my diet, which has been, well, let's just say I've loved milk my whole life. I and love so I had to give it up too. Yeah. And I still have a bit of dairy in the form of cheese or yogurt from time to time, but I have been working to get my husband to also give up milk because I've made my transition to plant-based milks. And it's- Me too. What, which plant-based? So far I'm liking oat milk and I'm using a non-GMO oat milk, but I like it in my coffee, which is kind of part of the reason, you know, it's my replacement, yeah. but I don't really use milks and much else, right? Aside yeah, from that, something like yogurt. I, I eat a 12 grain cereal every day, you know, I like, you know, using the, the uh, I'm actually eating oat, or drinking oat milk and coconut, mm. toasted coconut milk. It's very thick, you know, and you, so you're thinking of your cereal in kind of a different way. Yeah. It's, that's not quite the same, but... That's funny. I mean, I don't do very many grains, so I'm not doing cereal so much. As mm -hmm. I'm trying to transition to a more pure diet of whole foods, so to speak, and less meat than I used to eat. Yeah. Because the more I delve into this climate activism piece, the more it's hard to deny the impact we have and even just, you know, making the right decision and working with local farmers and getting responsible meats is still... It's very difficult, for one, and the supply isn't endless. And so if everybody was to eat that way, we wouldn't necessarily have enough. And so 
making the judgments about how much meat do you need? What is overconsumption? We've been told a book of lies, I think, about the nutrients we need. We don't need 2,000 calories a day, most of us far less. A fireman firefighting in the wilderness might need three or 4,000 in a day, but for most of us, we don't need that. And we also don't need all the grains just to hold us over. We just need to eat differently and more fats and healthy fats and nuts and seeds and things like that. In addition to fruits and vegetables, which we shouldn't necessarily limit ourselves on. And, you know, a variety of lean meats or proteins that can help us be sufficient for long term. So, you know, whether that's going to legumes and tofu and things like that, or going to rice and beans or going to some lean meats like fish, whatnot. I mean, we can make those choices for ourselves, but getting to a point where we have a sustainable community that can exist for the next generation, thinking about the world that my children will live in. I mean, it's undeniable that we all have to make certain changes in order to adapt for that future to ensure that we are living and breathing when it comes. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that is a huge change that we're going to be making. I had the pleasure of doing a uh, a TV documentary called Sustaining America's Agriculture. And I did a year of pre-research on it, and I went to 25 of the country's best farms. And I'm seeing that these really uh, skillful farmers are changing. And as you were speaking, I wanted to mention something that was one of the most exciting interviews I've ever done. And that is to go to the Land Institute in, in Kansas, where Wes Jackson, at that time, and I think still, is working on transforming agriculture from a seed-based thing, you know, an annual crop into perennial crops. And that's the kind of sweeping change that I like to see. I mean, let's think about just reinventing agriculture, housing. Let's just look at it in terms of a long shift that we're going to make, gradual shift. Like you say, we're going to be adding fish, you know, this now, you know, maybe twice a week is what we're we're looking at. And um, beginning to look at, at other things that can pump us up. Another story that uh, occurs to me is I was doing another documentary called Mega Cities, and we were in the heart, in the heart of, of Los Angeles where there was a guy giving spirulina tablets to these really destitute kids, and he saw an incredible jump in their vitality, their ability to be quiet in class, etc., so it's it's both the little changes and the huge changes that we're working on. In the garden, what I'm working on is is telling people I'm not tilling anymore. I'm actually hand digging close to an acre because you know, I want to keep the carbon in the soil. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually growing a lot of cover crops to put more carbon back into the soil where it has been for, you know, millions of years. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's changed my approach to weeding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, it's not doing any harm there, is it? It's just its own little cover crop, that weed there. I'll just trim it back a little bit. (laughs) Make sure it doesn't have any seeds. But uh, yes, you know, this gets back to what you were talking about. How do we, if we don't have a, and I remember talking to you a few weeks ago and telling you that I came across the word apocaloptimist. And it's possible for us to realize it doesn't all have to happen at one time. Right now, for example, we're making the transition to renewables. But as Biden has said, you know, it's going to be, we're still going to be using some fossil fuels, but we have our sights set on what we really want. And I think that idea of putting something before us that is a major goal and and something, a mission that can give us renaissance too, that's going to help empower people to really 
say, okay, we're, I guess we're going to do this. And again, I think uh, the emotional content is what is going to change us. And again, that's why I wanted to write the fiction. Because fiction, if you think of all the novels that have changed history, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley and Orwell and, uh, you know, various uh, Dickens, you know, going back a long time, a lot of these authors have actually changed the way people think. So I'm hopeful in that regard that we can and will make change, but we have to keep reminding ourselves, this really feels good while we're making these changes. I, I feel kind of proud of myself now. You know, again, rather than having a sense of an emotional sense of shame, all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm, I kind of have pride and that's more of a draw. And again, that's what telling the positive side of things in a novel is going to be more compelling to people than to be told, oh God, you know, we're never going to make it. <laughs> so that's kind of the way I live my life that, yeah, I have my down days, but I bounce right back and I say, but you know, to get beyond this, got to keep yourself busy. And you got to be doing something that has a sense of purpose. You got to be doing things that meet your needs to communicate. And again, so I'm very, very strong on the idea that we acknowledge that we Americans are not meeting our needs. We tend to think that we have everything going. You know, we spend the most money per capita. We have the biggest GDP. But we also have the most debt. We have the most child's mortality, infant mortality. For any many other reasons, we're not at the top of the pile. So we have a challenge that enables us to be creative and realize that there's some very different ways of doing it, and they're all going to be okay. It's going to be more comfortable to live a lower stress life, to slow down. And I think in terms of the whole metabolism of our civilization, gradually slowing down and realizing how good it feels and in a material sense, that's spoken of as being throughput. We're going to have less things going through our civilization. And we're going to say, you know what? Our paradigm has said that the environment is inside the economy. Wait a minute. No, everything's inside the environment. So to go along with something that we know to be fake news, <laughs> disinformation, you can become happy if you consume this, this, and this. It's a lie. Let's talk for a moment about living this more sustainable and minimalist lifestyle, because I think, you know, we're both seeing this trend. I think all of us are where you're seeing a resurgence in kind of slow fashion coming back to the forefront, as opposed to this fast fashion change every week, so to speak. The throwback to the 80s mom's jeans has even meant that some old Levi's are found in warehouses and then recirculated just as they were back in the 80s. And they're more durable. They last longer. They aren't full of these elastic fibers that are basically plastic that break down really quickly and mean that you have to buy a new pair of jeans, in, you know, a hot minute, so to speak. So I think some things are starting to turn. We're seeing that tide. But we're also seeing this trend where people are replacing their gas cars with a new bright and shiny Tesla or a new bright and shiny electric vehicle thinking that they're changing the world by doing so. And I have some qualms about this particular thing because I think if we are automatically recycling what was old and moving right into the new bright and shiny and we're having to capture rare earth minerals in order to fuel that vehicle, that machinery, and we're now pushing the gas guzzlers into lower tranche of 
the economic sector who then suddenly buys them because they're cheap and then can't afford to fuel them and now are stuck and not able to move around the world. I mean, these are the unintended consequences that can kind of start to ricochet or, or have a domino effect and then further harm those in a lower economic sector. So I wonder what your thoughts are about that and how we can shift our thinking as a community, as a nation, to encourage people to care more for the underdog, so to speak, because that person isn't going to be able to go out and get a Chevy Bolt that, like the one I had for a few years before turning it in after the lease expired. They're going to be less capable of going out there and getting even a used Tesla. I mean, that's just not on the horizon for many people. So mm-hmm. how do we make this more real? Well, some of it, as we long, long suspected, some of it comes down to when you hit the wall, you make change. And I think when we hit the wall with the uh, pandemic, a lot of people did start to change. They, like you said, there's there was much less expenditure on clothing, for example, and the skin creams and whatever makeup thing because we really didn't have to encounter other people quite as much. But I think things can change, and I think it probably will come down to economic distress and so forth. But that economic distress gets people on on public transportation. Mm-hmm. And it begins to have people telling each other, well, you know, I'm getting, uh, you know, the people wearing these watches saying how many miles they walked and so forth. If it becomes fashionable to be healthy, and that's and that's what we're both about, really, then people change because not only do they have to, but they're beginning to see the you know what has hit the fan and that, and that now we need to change. And so I think piece by piece, they will begin to go to the used uh, stores and and drive. I'm the guy that I mentioned who drives the old car uh, mm-hmm. for two, for two um, what are they, Volvo, two Volvos in a row. I was the guy who was driving the Volvo. And this gets into a feeling of mine that if you look at what the value is of a small house or a beat up car, actually, as you begin to change, you're beginning to see, wait a minute, that Volvo actually is the safest car on the road. It's, I don't have to worry about anybody stealing it. You know, I'm not ashamed of it. It's great for camping. It's got a six-foot bed in the back, you know, one of the station wagons. So for many years, I took the sense of pride that I was keeping that vehicle alive and I didn't have to be buying something that was just, just manufactured. Mm-hmm. So I think so much of it is about getting the mind open and then having people say, not only am I willing to do this, but geez, I you know, now, as I link up with other people who are like-minded, we're all thinking this is a good idea to be get jumping on the bus. You know, that was one of the things that I held back on riding the bus until I got on and I made a vent- an adventure out of it. I wrote a little story for the newspaper about my backpack and my whole thing about riding the bus to work. Mm-hmm. So it's just so much of it is about what we think of ourselves and what we're not only willing to do, but what we also have to do. Again, you know, on the idea of the value of something, think about the idea that a small house not only has a very shorter mortgage period, but it doesn't require as much maintenance. You can fix it up just the way you want. If it's a house that happens to face south, you can have your solar energy on it and your passive solar as well. See, now we're talking about the content of an earlier podcast I had with Dr. Vimal Thomas-George, who wrote the book Health in Flames, which essentially is a plea to Americans to consider putting away more money and spend less of it because you can actually get out of debt and even become financially independent before you're in your retirement years if you take these approaches. If you 
buy a smaller house or even a condo because that's what you need as opposed to what you might want. And so that you are essentially just living a little bit more meagerly throughout your life and flipping on your head a little bit what you consider putting away each year so that you're not a slave to the J-O-B of nine to five until you're 65. You remind me of my friend Vicki Robin, who wrote Your Money, Your Your Life with mm-hmm. Joe Mingus. You should have her on your on your show because I'd uh, love to. She really has lived that life very well. And she made the point, just like you did, that by putting aside this money, Joe Dominguez was able to retire extremely early. And if you think about the idea that I'm going to consume less money, and that probably is going to mean I'm going to go into less debt because I'm not going to be consuming as much. Then you then you get into the second tier, which is, well, if I have less debt, I have less interest on the debt. So right. caged to where, you know, and again, I think maybe the pandemic taught us that we can put money aside. My special hobby during the pandemic was investing in green energy and green materials and so forth. I had a ball, you know, and I said, I'm helping out here, helping these companies uh, become stronger by putting my 200 bucks of, you know, every couple of weeks into uh, this fund. And then I watched it go down, <laughs> plunge in the last couple of weeks. And now it's bouncing. Well, everything's back. plunged in the last few weeks. Let's be real. It's holding its place. And I think it's coming back up. Yes. But <laughs> this is market volatility. Sometimes, especially times like what we're seeing happen in Ukraine. I mean, uncertainty hits a global empire and suddenly markets respond in really funky ways, whether or not we want them to. And, you know, sometimes you have to sit tight and wade through it. But I've kept all my investments where they were. Like you, I search for green energy things along those lines to invest in because I put my money where my mouth is, too. Yeah. And it really is fun. And it really is interesting going into the backstory of where the lithium comes from and, mm-hmm. you know, this whole thing. And then, you know, telling my friends about it. And this is this is a piece of what I'm talking about. If we communicate to each other about what we're excited about, I really think at the base of it, we can't make change until we're whole people and until we're excited people, passionate people. Or we can't make it quite to passion. Like I said, at least interested, curious people. And now we can bring our strength, you know, and we can maybe, as is happening during the pandemic, maybe we can lose that job because, you know, the job market's really, we can find another job. So let's find a job that we really enjoy doing. And we've just given ourselves five days a week. You know, we may have given ourselves a job where we can be a co-owner in that business. We may find a job that we can have a four-day week. So just by the market can do certain things. I, I'm a skeptic that it can do everything, but I do think that our preferences, if they're intelligent, can begin to drive the whole thing. And if we hold up in front of our noses what it is that we want, we can go get it. And the redefinition of a life well-lived is at the top of my list for how we get started. And that brings me back to another piece of our conversation that in order to build a co-housing community, we had to first think, what is it we, what do we want? And during one of our sessions, it was like, let's sit down on the living room floor here and we're talking about what kind of a place do we want? And the guy who was, was the designer of the neighborhood actually and still lives here, he said, I'd really like it to be a Southwestern Santa Fe style community. And somebody uh, in that living room said, well, we're gonna have that. I can hear that mission bell going like they have in Santa Fe, and my parents happen to have a bell on their barn floor, and we can have it. You know, so what you're doing is we're dreaming, and dreaming is not a bad thing. It's fun. You know, so dreaming and visioning 
I think we need to give ourselves permission to be excited about this new vision and to infuse our excitement to other people and, and for them to understand we're actually working together to create a new vision of how humans should live. And you asked before, um, you know, was Paul Hawken one of the, one of my characters? He's certainly in there because this is exactly what he's thinking too. He's thinking we need the vision of how to use the sea to seascape, for example, or like I said with Wes Jackson and the, uh, the new kind of the perennial polyculture. You got to first have the big dream. You got to have the vision of where you're going and create the scenario for how you might get there. And then by God, you're finding out you are, you're making progress, not only in the community level, but as you're looking, you see now the whole state of Washington is doing Vermont, you know, it's like one, one light coming out at a time. Well, that's fantastic, David. Now, as we prepare to wrap, I wonder if there's one thought that you'd like to leave our audience with and also share what the best way is to get in touch with you, because I understand they can pick up your books on Amazon, Tickling the Bears there, as well as all these other works that we've mentioned today. And I will include links in our show notes, but enabling us to go ahead and reference any of those, if there's a specific way that you like to be contacted, why don't you go ahead and share that? Yeah, you know, I've just recently begin, begun to rebuild my mailing list. And if people go to my website, davewan.net, they can join this mailing that I'm going to be doing hopefully every three weeks or whatever people can tolerate. And it's actually borrowing from my nonfiction books. And there are little pieces of wisdom that I drew from other people and, you know, dreamt up myself. So davewan.net gets people involved with my mailing list. I do strongly recommend the book, Simple Prosperity. Simple Prosperity more or less catapulted these characters that I, fictional characters that I created into the world. It's almost like they jumped out of that book and jumped into the novel. So I would certainly like to have people look at that book. And like you said, Affluenza still has some resonance. It's a 20-year-old book, but it has a lot of common sense and a little bit of humor too. It still applies. That's absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Now, listeners, it's time for that simple ask. Now, we've had this incredible discussion today with David Wan that I hope has got you thinking. You can reach out to him via his website, which is davewan.net. That's D-A-V-E-W-A-N-N.net. Links to this and all of the books, as well as his social, which we discussed today, will be in our show notes, which you can always find at caremorebebetter.com. His new novel, Tickling the Bear, portrays that small band of colorful changemakers that are on the cusp of building a new society, one in which simple prosperity is the new normal. And that's the world that we're all seeking to build here today. So I encourage you to go out and check out both of those books. Thank you, listeners, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, and we can be better. We can even regenerate Earth. And speaking of, if you want to dive deep into that entire concept of regeneration, I did record an 11-podcast series covering the book Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation by Paul Hawken. And so you can listen to the entire series. If you go to my website, caremorebebetter.com, you can just look under the category of regeneration and you'll find them all right there. Thank you. I hope you have an amazing day. And thank you for being a part of this community. 
Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.